Good morning. I live in Minnesota most of the time, but I also travel about three times a year to Ethiopia to train pastors uh, in expository preaching. Now, I used to be a church planter in Japan uh, for uh, 15 out of, well, 15 years, and uh, then God pulled me out of Japan and said, let me show you what I'm doing in the rest of the world. And uh, so for six years, I was going mostly to Indonesia, Vietnam, Papua New Guinea, and places like that to train pastors, not in all the activities of pastors. Pastors have to do a lot of different tasks, but just in the narrow range of teaching expository preaching. Now, I don't have to tell them how to do delivery because most of them are excellent speakers in their own language, and I can't help them be better at that. I can't help them illustrate better in their own languages, but I can help them learn how to read the text, commit themselves to the text, focus on the text, and there are specific skills that are needed for interpreting different genres, different kinds of literature in the Bible, like how you interpret poetry is different from how you interpret 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 narrative different from how you interpret law and how you interpret gospel and how you interpret revelation. So now we have separate courses. We have nine courses to teach people the skills of expository preaching. So I work for an organization called Training Leaders International and enough about me. I'm not going to tell you any more about me until this afternoon. If you want to learn more about my ministry this afternoon, uh, I believe after lunch, we will have a time where I'll show you pictures of what I'm doing and people and tell you stories and so on. But now I want to focus our attention entirely on the Word of God. For those of you who will not stay for this afternoon, I'm going to put some of these cards out on the table. Please don't take the other things on the table, but feel free to take these cards home and pray for me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for your word. Your word is precious to us. It is our, our food and drink. It is our, our life because you speak by your Holy Spirit through our through your word, and we pray that you would speak into our lives this morning. And uh, please probe deeply by your word, but encourage us, build us up in our trust in you, in our trust in your word, and our love for Jesus Christ, and our love for your people. Give us wisdom and guidance of how we should treat our neighbors and our brothers and sisters and even our enemies. Lord, you are wise and good, and we thank you again for your word and for the privilege of focusing on it now in these minutes. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to turn to the book of Ruth, and I am going to read two whole chapters of Ruth because it's not possible to understand chapter 2 without chapter 1. So... Um, Usually I have people stand for the reading of the word, but I'm going to let you sit down because it's so long this time. <clears throat> Ruth 1 and 2. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went 
to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they left, lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. And Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, and she said, No more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity on me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And I'm going to pause there. We have seen... Perhaps some of you might have been here when I preached on Ruth 1 the last time I was here. But if you don't remember that, that's okay. What I emphasized is that Ruth is a story. It's not a how-to manual of how to cope with tragedy or how to deal with the poor or how to... It's not even a how-to manual for repentance, but it is a story. And that's what's valuable about it. It is a story, a true story, that God wants us to know. 
It's about a Judahite widow, Naomi, sojourning in Moab, together with her two daughters-in-law, also widowed. And they started out from Moab to return to Bethlehem in Judah. And she suddenly realized as she's walking along that she can't provide husbands for these two young widows, as was her legal and moral duty. Neither was it likely that her relatives would marry them because Israelites were historically enemies of the Moabites. So Naomi tried to send the two younger widows home. She gave each two blessings. May Yahweh deal with you, deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. That's verse 8 that we just read. The second blessing is in verse 9. May Yahweh grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Now remember those two blessings. I'm going to say them again. The first one, may Yahweh deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And the second blessing, may Yahweh grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And these two blessings set the agenda for the whole rest of the book. Orpah kissed Naomi and went away to her own family, to her own gods, to probably get remarried. But Ruth refused, promising to go where Naomi went, stay where Naomi stayed, embrace Naomi's people and Naomi's God, and die where Naomi died and there be buried. And then she proceeded to take an oath in the name of her new God, in Yahweh's name, bringing a curse on herself if she ever left Naomi. Now, Naomi couldn't argue with that curse. So she quit arguing, and Ruth traveled with her to Bethlehem. When welcomed by the women of the town, Naomi poured out her bitterness against God, who had taken away from her, or taken her away from Bethlehem full, but brought her back empty. She felt judged and punished by God, and she wanted to no longer be called Naomi, which means pleasant. She said, call me Mara, which means bitter, because God had made her life bitter. Now, that exchange gives us insight into Naomi's motivation in trying to send her daughters-in-law back to their mother's homes. Naomi was sure that she was under a cloud of God's wrath wherever she went, and she didn't want the two daughters-in-law to suffer because of her. She loved them. We can see this not only in the blessings she pronounced, but also in the way she called them my daughters. Do you see that in verse 11? My daughters. See it again in verse 12. You see it again in verse 13. And we're going to see more of the same. So whether or not Naomi was in sin or not at this point, God used her as a witness to attract a Gentile to himself. Think about it. Though Naomi was suffering severe sorrow under the hand of God, Ruth still saw something so attractive in Naomi's faith as she was suffering, as her God was punishing her, it was still so attractive that Ruth wanted to stay permanently with this woman, with her and her God, even embracing her sorrow, or as we would say now, leaning into Naomi's sorrow as well as her own. So they arrived in Bethlehem just in time for the start of the barley harvest. Now that start was a specific day every year. 
Every year, the barley harvest started on the Sunday after Passover, which is what we call Easter. So this is Easter Sunday at the beginning now as we enter into chapter 2. Chapter 2, please follow along as I read. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go into the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field where they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell down on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and have spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and she and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her, and also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, 
You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. The structure of what we just read in chapter 2 is this. First one stands alone. Boaz is introduced as a worthy man in Elimelech's clan. So please follow along and, and notice where the breaks are here. Then verses 2 and 3, Ruth gets Naomi's permission to glean and happens to work in Boaz's field. Verses 4 to 7, Boaz arrives in the field and after exchanging blessings with the workers, inquires about Ruth. The foreman gives him a positive report on Ruth's diligence. Then verses 8 to 13, Boaz and Ruth have a conversation and he already knows her history and her faith. Boaz shows Ruth favor and kindness and she's amazed. Verses 14 to 16, Boaz also shows kindness to Ruth at lunch and hidden kindness thereafter. And then 17 to 23, the rest of the chapter, Ruth takes home much grain to Naomi, who responds with blessing, faith, and insight into Boaz and gives advice to Ruth. The message of the author in this whole chapter that summarizes what I just covered is this. Yahweh shows kindness to Ruth and Naomi through Boaz, giving them new hope. I'll say that again. Yahweh shows kindness to Ruth and Naomi through Boaz, giving them new hope. And so the structure of what we're going to do from now on, three points. We're going to begin by looking at background information in Scripture, together with verses 1 to 7. That will be point one. Next, we will look at Boaz's interactions with Ruth, verses 16, or 8 to 16. That's point two. And last, we'll see the results of his kindness to her within the rest of this chapter, and that's 17 to 23. That's point three. And then we'll move to application. So first, background in scripture. Boaz's grandfather left Egypt with Moses. His name was Nashon, and he's described in 1 Chronicles 2.10 as a prince of the sons of, his, uh, sons of Judah, prince of the sons of Judah. Since Judah had no royalty back then, the description is figurative. He must have been an impressive man, but he didn't enter the promised land. He died in the desert because of unbelief. An impressive man, but he died in the desert because of unbelief. Nashon's son, Salmon, it's spelled like the fish, but it's spelled, it's pronounced differently. Salmon did enter the promised land. It is possible that he was one of the two spies that scouted Jericho. But we don't know that for sure. What we do know for sure is that he married Rahab, the prostitute, who hid the spies because she had come to believe in Yahweh. We don't see that in the Old Testament. That's only told us in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. So Salmon and Rahab were the parents of Boaz. <clears throat> Perhaps that gave Boaz 
a little bit of sympathy for foreigners that married into Israel. Solomon was also the founder of the city of Bethlehem. We see that in 1 Chronicles 2.31. Now, Boaz himself is described here in verse 1 as a worthy man. Our narrator twice mentions that Boaz was of the clan of Elimelech. He certainly owned many fields, hired many workers, and was generous. Now, I want to look at the idea of gleaning. That gleaning is a practice of picking up the leftovers after the main harvest, and it's a practice established by Yahweh in the law of Moses. Listen to these passages in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And when you see the word Lord spelled with all capital letters, I'm going to be pronouncing it as Yahweh. That's the Hebrew it represents. So Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10. And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy, for I, Yahweh your God, am holy. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. I'm sorry, I started in verse 1, and I read verses 1 to... Uh, I read verses 1 and 2. Uh, no, I read verses 1 to 4 in Leviticus 19, and then I jumped... If you're following along, I read verses, uh, I'm sorry, I read verses 1 and 2, and then I jumped to verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and sh you shall not strip your vine bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am Yahweh your God. Now, notice how that commandment ends. God declaring his identity. And that's not unique. It happens 15 times in the chapter of Leviticus 19 alone. Even if you forget all the commands in, verse, in Leviticus 19, you come away from Leviticus 19 with a strong sense of who Yahweh is, particularly that he's holy. And his holiness requires us to be holy and it's expressed in actual behaviors and kindnesses. <clears throat> so here God is showing his holiness and requiring his people's holiness by telling them to leave generous leftovers in their fields and vineyards for the poor. Now, moving on in Leviticus to chapter 23, 22, it's nearly verbatim what we just read. Listen to this. When you reap the harvest of your land you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am Yahweh your God. Years later, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 19 to 24, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be there for the sojourner, the father and the widow, or the fatherless and the widow, that Yahweh your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow. When you gather grapes in your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterwards. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow. 
You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. Why this emphasis and so much detail? Yahweh wanted to see that the father, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, and the poor were cared for. He also wanted to build into his people a heart of compassion for the vulnerable, reminding them that they too were once slaves in Egypt. He chose to provide for the poor, even those who own no land, in a way that granted them dignity. Going into the fields of others, they worked with their own hands to gather for their own needs. Yahweh desires kindness, both in private and in public, in ways that build people up and do not degrade or shame them. That's his character. Therefore, he wants it to be your character. In verse 2 of Ruth 2, we see Ruth taking initiative to benefit from this law of Moses. So I'm going back to Ruth chapter 2 now. Either Naomi or some Judahite must have told her about these laws of gleaning because she knew that she could do this. But she still asked Naomi's permission. She also knew that she would need to find favor from some landowner, for not all sinners keep the law of Moses and of Yahweh or share his heart of compassion. In God's providence, Ruth began to glean in a field that belonged to Boaz. Boaz arrived and greeted his workers in Yahweh's name, and they blessed him also in Yahweh's name. Please don't overlook that. We're going to come back to that in application. Boaz then asks his foreman, who here is called the young man in charge of the workers, about Ruth. Notice that he doesn't ask her name, but he asks who she belongs to. The foreman says, she's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. How's that for an emphasis on ethnicity? The Moabite woman who came back from Moab. Notice that this foreman has already given Ruth permission to glean in the field. He already was honoring Yahweh's laws of compassion. Perhaps Boaz had trained him in this, as well as in the skills of harvesting and management. The foreman also had noted Ruth's diligence and reported this to Boaz. So, so much for the background and the beginning of the story. Now we turn to point two, Boaz's interactions with Ruth, verses 8 to 16. In his first words to Ruth, Boaz echoes the heart of Naomi, calling Ruth, my daughter. He instructs her not to go anywhere else. She's welcome and safe in his fields. His young men are already instructed not to touch her. She also has explicit permission to drink from the vessels the other workers use, from the water that the young men have drawn. Ruth first humbles herself, falling on her face, bowing down to the ground, and then she expresses her surprise at this favor shown to a foreigner. Boaz reveals that he already knows all about her kindness to Naomi, especially her sacrifice of all past relationships, her native land, her culture, all given up to face a new life among a people she did not know. 
Now listen in verses 11 and 12 to what Boaz thinks of Ruth's faith. But Boaz said to her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law has been, <clears throat> since the death of your husband, has been fully told to me. How you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Yahweh repay you for what you've done. And a full reward be given to you by Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. He acknowledges that she is a real believer, putting herself under the wings of Yahweh and expecting refuge there. Now this expression, under the wings, recurs in chapter 3, but with a very different meaning. There, uh, you might see it translated as, spread the corner of your garment over me. Or in NIV, I'm sorry, in ESV, it says, spread your wings over your servant. So, um, identical expression, but a different meaning there. There it is asking him to claim her for marriage. Here, it is an image of a mother bird spreading her wings as to shade or shelter her chicks to protect them from harm. Jesus said to the people in his day, and I'm reading now from Luke 13, 34 and 35. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me again till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus wanted to protect Jerusalem, gather her people to himself, and protect them as a mother hen would protect her chicks. But Jerusalem would not come in to come to Jesus for his protection. The same image is in Psalm 91, verse 4, speaking of Yahweh's protection over one who trusts in him. Psalm 91, 4. He will cover you with his pinions. That's a word for feathers. And under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. That's clearly about protection. Now Ruth, going back to chapter 2 of Ruth, responds to Boaz's blessings by humbling herself again, calling herself your servant, though I'm not one of your servants. Is she contradicting herself? No. She knows that formally... She's not hired by Boaz, and he has no legal reason nor ethnic reason to care for her. But she honors him and puts herself under his authority. And Boaz's kindness continues at lunchtime. He invites her to share the lunch and some roasted barley that he's provided for the other workers. And it seems that a portion was served to her because she had some left over to take home to Naomi. His kindness goes even deeper. He then instructs his workers not to reproach her, even if she gleans right among them, not after them, as in verse 3 or verse 7, <clears throat> but right among them, she's welcome to be harvesting right together with them. And he tells them deliberately to 
drop things for her to pick up. <clears throat> this is hidden generosity. So how, how does all this kindness play out? What are the results? Part three. Ruth carries home to Naomi a large amount of grain, probably 5.5 gallons of barley, as well as the leftovers from her lunch. And Naomi is eager to find out the details of where and with whom Ruth has gleaned. But even before she gets those answers, she's blessing the unknown man who was generous to Ruth. When she learns that he was Boaz, she blesses him again and acknowledges that behind Boaz's kindness is Yahweh, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. What does she mean by that? <clears throat> Naomi has poured out her bitterness against Yahweh. She was still believing in him, but was sure his kindness had turned away from her. Now she acknowledges that Yahweh is still showing kindness to her. But whom does she mean by the dead? And how do they benefit from his kindness? Naomi's dead, as we saw her use that expression back in chapter 1, verse 8, were her husband, Elimelech, and her two sons, Malon and Kilion. They would have wanted their survivors to be cared for. So God is granting what those dead would have wanted in caring for Naomi and Ruth. So we see Naomi's hope in God is reviving. Naomi then offers Ruth new information about Boaz. This man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Now that last word is a Hebrew word goel that uh, Pastor Keith has already preached to you about. But the term in Hebrew uh, could be translated kinsman, redeemer, or something similar in your Bible. I would translate the Hebrew term as family champion. A man with this title could serve his family or clan in many different roles. For example, and I'm going to give you five examples now. If anyone in his family was killed, he became the avenger of blood to track down and execute the murderer. Second example, if anyone in his family became a slave, it was his job to buy back or redeem that person, restoring freedom. Third example, if anyone in the clan became so impoverished that he or she had to sell land, it was the job of this family champion to buy it back for the family, to redeem the land. Similarly, fourth example, to keep land from being sold outside the clan, the family champions could buy it from an impoverished relative, with the first option going to the closest relative. And this is in play in the story of Naomi, as you would see in chapter 4. Now, all of these four roles require power or wealth. <clears throat> There's one more role, the fifth role. Similarly, to keep land in the family, if a widow had no offspring, the males in her family, in order of closest, closeness to her husband, had not only the option but the duty to get her pregnant so that she would have an heir and someone to care for her in her old age. Now this role did not require power or wealth, but it 
did require willingness, and it could have an impact on both wealth and status and much else. So this is a hint of what's at stake in this story. Remember back to Naomi's blessings on the two daughters-in-law in, -law in uh, verses 8 and 9 of chapter 1, that God would show kindness and that they would have husbands. After this revelation of Boaz being the Goel, Naomi, or Ruth tells Naomi that Boaz urged her to work among his young men until the end of the harvest, verse 21. Uh, you see that term in the ESV, the NIV just says among his workers, so it's not clear whether these workers are men or women. But the ESV makes clear that Boaz wanted her to work among his young men. Now, Naomi seems to agree, but subtly suggests a different idea. Verse 22, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. Note that both Naomi and Boaz share a concern that Ruth not be harmed. Boaz has already instructed his young men not to touch her, and he trusts them to obey. It seems, however, that he has judged that Ruth would be a fine bride for one of his young men. So he wants her to be among them. But Naomi is hatching another plan. So it became Ruth's pattern to glean among Boaz's young women until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. Ruth is following Naomi's advice, not Boaz's here. Now let's get to application. Boaz blessed his workers, and then he blessed a stranger that he was meeting for the first time in Yahweh's name. So I have a question for you. Do you bless people in God's name, in the name of Jesus Christ, or just Christians? Do you say God bless you to people that you know are pagans? Think what a testimony you could have if you began to bless Muslims and pagans and others among whom you live and work in the name of Jesus Christ. Explicitly saying, I bless you in the name of Jesus. Yeah, I mean out loud to their faces. They may be startled at first, but since you're communicating goodwill, they're unlikely to hate you for it. And even if they do, you've shown the character of your God in a simple, straightforward way. On my last trip to Ethiopia, I sat next to a, a Muslim gentleman. He saw me reading my Bible, and I told him, he asked what I was going to Ethiopia for. And I said, I'm a teacher, and I'm going to be teaching people from the Bible. And he said, I am an evangelist also. I am a Muslim evangelist, and I have gone out on short-term trips to train people in the Quran. And <clears throat> he thought I would be intimidated. <clears throat> so I asked him questions, and then I told him about Jesus. Um, <clears throat> I have heard that when somebody asked Mus uh, Muhammad, about 
eternal life. He said, no, I, I can't give you eternal life. You have to go to Esau for that. Well, <clears throat> that was startling to this young man. He, he was sure that he knew more about Esau, Jesus. And I said, have you read the Gospels? Do you realize that Mohammed commanded all his followers to, to read the Injil? And <clears throat> have you read the Injil? Well, no, I haven't read it because it's been corrupted. I said, who told you it was corrupted? That, that came many centuries after Muhammad. And Muhammad, at his time, when he was commanding people to read the Gospels, Injil is the word for Gospel, when he was telling his followers to read the Gospels, there was no theory out there that they'd been corrupted already. He was telling them to read the very Gospels that you and I have in front of us. And I said to my friend, you really ought to read and we, I shared several things out of the Bible with him. At first he was arguing back, and then he became respectful, and he, he was listening more and more. Later on, I got up to go to the bathroom, and I noticed that he had already left his seat, and he was in a part of the airplane aisle, standing, trying to make a decision. And he said to me, what direction is Mecca? It was time for him to say his prayers. And he needed to get down on the floor, facing Mecca, and pray. And he thought it was this way. I said, no, it's that way. Because the plane is headed east, and Mecca's a little bit southeast. And he thought about it. He realized I was right. He thanked me. And he said, would you please stand guard while I say my prayers? And I said, yeah, sure. He got down on the dirty floor of the plane and said his prayers. And I just stood over him, being a friendly presence. But this man is willing to meet with me now that when he gets back to Minnesota. And he lives just a few miles from me. <laughs> so providence of God was not just in the book of Ruth. <clears throat> Second application. <clears throat> Do you show and teach others the grace and kindness of Christ, as Boaz clearly did? Christian generosity shows the character of God to the world. It was this kindness of God that sent Jesus Christ into the world, not only to teach us about goodness, but to achieve perfect goodness under the law of God. And Jesus shares that perfect righteousness with all who are in him. That's only half of the transaction. His righteousness bestowed on us. Undeserved, just generously given. The other half of the transaction was our bentness, our evil, was transferred onto him. All our deeds of pride and rebellion entered into Christ's own body, and he was punished in our place. He suffered torture and death on the cross in our place to take our punishment. By his sacrifice of himself, we are forgiven. By his perfect life and his obedient death, we are declared righteous. Do you share in that? This is a moment for you to examine your own heart. Am I in Christ? Am I freed from my sins? 
and dressed in his righteousness. How do we come to be in Christ? By faith in Christ. Just as Ruth entrusted herself to the God of Israel, taking refuge under his wings, you, my friend, should take refuge in Christ. Just as Ruth humbly entrusted herself to Boaz, calling herself your servant, and receiving his favor, you too should entrust yourself to Jesus Christ. He became your Goel, your family champion, in a far deeper way than Boaz ever could. So pray to him and ask him right now to be your family champion, your avenger, your provider, your redeemer, and your friend. He will save you from your sins, from yourself, from your environment. Not all those things immediately, but fully and completely so that you will enjoy everlasting joy with him as well as his favor and kindness in this life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, what a savior you are. Boaz gives us a little picture of you. You are so much more. Thank you. We really love you. We trust you. We can never thank you enough for taking our penalty and suffering in our place the punishment we deserve for our sins against a holy God. We can never thank you enough for achieving perfect righteousness here in a sinful world, not far away, but in our sinful world with all the temptations and challenges and meanness <clears throat> and cultural traps around you. You achieve perfect righteousness and you freely share that with us. We don't deserve it, but we thank you. Your active righteousness is our only hope. So I pray that if there's anyone who has not yet stepped into the joy of your salvation, that you would get hold of that heart and cause them to do that right now. Even in this moment. And if there's one of your children who's slipped away from you or lost sight of you or gotten a foggy focus on you, I pray that you would bring them back to yourself with repentance, with joy, with reassurance, and with delight, because you're a wonderful Savior. We love you very much. In Jesus' name, amen.